Welcome to Newsworthy with Norisworthy. Get ready hey for some you awesome. Guys for a treat today. This is a podcast that I have been uh, very excited to share with you. I hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed having it. Uh, the the incomparable Barbara Brown Taylor and her new book, Holy Envy, is what we're discussing. Uh, and let me talk about another book for just a second, uh, God Over Good. It's it's my book. It's been out now for six months, and I can't believe it. It's a book that uh, I spent uh, a lot of time uh, writing because it's, it's in a lot of ways the culmination of so many things. It's the culmination of many conversations you've heard on here. It's the kind of the culmination of kind of the season that that I was in when I started the podcast. And so if you haven't uh, got a copy of it, I'm, just just go do that. That'd be a nice thing to do. If, if you have got a copy of it, uh, I would greatly appreciate if you gave some love on social media or if you left a review, or actually both, both and. Yeah, if you left a review on uh, like Amazon or Goodreads and uh, left some social media love out there for, for the book as well, it'd be greatly appreciated. So thanks uh, for all the support and um, nothing says happy Mother's Day and Father's Day and 4th of July and like graduation, like a couple copies of the book. So go do that for those that you love. And without further ado, here's someone you're going to love now, Barbara Friends, Brown welcome back to the show. Today we have returning for the third time, Barbara Brown Taylor. Mm-hmm. How are you, friend? I'm fine. How are you, Luke? I'm good. I, I don't know if we're good enough friends where I can refer to you as BBT to oh, your yeah. face, but oh, yeah. I, I, I can't. Yes, we're good. Yeah, like LBJ, JFK, BBT, it all works for me. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that's, <laughs> there's, a, there's a group for you. Yeah. You, I, I was going to say, I hope you got the arrogance in that. I don't think we have one for <laughs> Francis, do we? Or I would have put him in the mix. So. No, I have one for, uh, obviously, NT Wright, NTW, that makes perfect sense. Mm-hmm. Um, Richard Rohr, RR, um, Eugene Peterson, EP. Like, th- these are all my shorthands. I also, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I go with ODB for him when I write him down. <laughs> so that's a reference to a rapper, which you might not know who he is. But anyway, um, Okay, so people do people call you that to your face though? Students baptized me with that, and I and I like to think it was a compliment. Professor Taylor, Doctor Taylor, didn't sound right, but Barbara didn't either, so they turned it into BBT, and I like that. Yeah, yeah, that's that's where I was too. Like I feel like I I, I don't feel right calling you Barb. So uh, let's go with uh, BBT. Deal. Are we good with that? Deal. Deal. Okay. Well, we're back on the podcast this time. I don't know if you remember last time, but I had. Uh, Two of the biggest faux pas of the podcast that I've ever had. Um, one, the, in our second conversation, I somehow screwed up the time zone, mm. and I was like 30 minutes late, and I live in Texas. You're in Georgia. Like, that's, that's an hour. Like, you, you shouldn't mess that time zone up, but I did. And so that was bad. But then on top of that, what you might not have noticed, but during our conversation, there was the voice of a three-year-old banging on a door saying, Daddy, wipe my hiney. <laughs> no, I didn't hear that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I used to office from home, and uh, I've since transitioned jobs, and now I'm at a church with a, like, a, I have an office. So if someone bangs on the door asking me to wipe their hiney now, it will be a serious problem. Yeah, well, at least you'll have a witness. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> Outstanding. All right, okay. Um, so yeah, it's been a few years since we've had you on, and uh, when uh, Harper One sent me something saying that you got a book coming out, I was very excited. And is it four, five years since your last book? 
I, it might have even been longer than that this time. Yeah, I, I, I'm slow, you know. The the idea is you're supposed to write a book every year, but I don't know how anybody writes a book every year. So, yeah, it's been at least that long. Yeah. Yeah, so what is your, your writing process? That changes depending on the season and depending on the assignment. Um, I'm not a regular writer, and I think it's a terrible idea not to be, but I'm just not. <laughs> so... So I tend, I mean, my ideal is a nice leisurely get up in the morning and be sitting in a writing chair by eight and stay there till 12 or one. And still, I, and you know, when I start checking the thesaurus every four minutes for my <laughs> word choices, I know it's time to quit for the day. Okay. But how often do you find yourself making that a, your day? Um, I, well, see, a lot of my talking now is in other states, so it depends on whether it's the week that I'm going to the airport to go to that place to talk. I can't do anything that week, and um, the in-between weeks are the weeks that I can keep that schedule. So it, the challenge for me is keeping a nice block of time. My friend Marcus Borg, you hear me just drop that, my friend Marcus Borg, <laughs> he used to um, save three months in the summertime, and that's another way to do it, just a longish stretch of time. So I... I'm done with this book, and I don't know that there will be another, but that'd be an interesting way to go at it as well. So it just, just depends. A, a, yeah. Are you familiar with Stephen Pressfield and the War of Art? No, tell me. Okay, so this is the guy who wrote like Legend of Bagger Vance and oh. a bunch of other like novels that are like Roman Emperor. I don't know what it is. I haven't read any of his fiction stuff. His nonfiction book is one of my favorites. He's been on Oprah talking about it. Your friend, hmm. Oprah. Oh, my, uh, my other friend, yeah. Yeah, I dropped that for you. Mm -hmm. But he talks about every day you just show up and write. And you write 500 words every day, in season, out season. When you finish a book, the next day, get back in your chair and start writing 500 words. Mm -hmm. And that's been very helpful to me. I I am literally emailing a book to my publisher either this afternoon or in the morning. And I will feel the need that I will need to start writing the next book as soon as I hit send on that email. And I don't know if that's good or not. No, I think that's wonderful. That's wonderful. I had a friend here. He just signed a contract for his book. And when he stayed with me, he went out on his cell phone and with his thumbs wrote a chapter. He would just go out every morning and walk and and write on his um, on his cell phone. So so, no, th- that kind of a pattern is wonderful. And and um, you just encouraged me to reconsider that. I was kind of hoping you would give me a little bit of grace so I wouldn't feel the need to work so hard. Uh, no, uh, and you didn't do that. I don't I, have I, a clue about a next book, so yours is working better than mine. <laughs> I didn't think any of mine are good ideas about books, but I can still write 500 bad words every day. Now, someone writing a book on their phone, like with their thumbs, if, you t- if that's like Elizabeth Gilbert or someone, I'm going to like throw up because I can't imagine that actually being a good chapter if you wrote it on your, on your phone with your thumbs. That's why I'm not divulging an identity, but I will tell you this, uh, for someone who lives a real online life, in other words, is texting people, encouraging people, really pastoring people a lot on his cell phone because he's in airports so much, I just think that's become, well, it would be his equivalent. Um, I used to write in longhand. I wrote two, I wrote five or six books in longhand, and now I can't imagine doing that. You know, the keyboard under my fingers now is how the ideas come. So I'm willing to believe, you know, the medium is different for different people. But I will tell you this: it's not Elizabeth Gilbert. <laughs> she is not. Okay. She's not my friend yet. 
I, I feel like that could happen soon, though. <laughs> if you want, we could try to put a three-person podcast together. Yeah. And maybe that would be the way to do that. You woo her. I will tell you my equivalent, though, is is I do write in long spurts. And then 20,000 words end up on the floor. You know, So I have my own version of writing a lot more than is ever going to make it anywhere just to keep the water flowing through the the pipes so so i have a version of it you know i'm not sure it's going anywhere but i I need to keep writing when you're writing for a book compared to writing a sermon is a process similar does it feel the same do you have the same sort of like discarding uh you know a a substantial chunk of the text now i love it we're talking about this though because i think this is about life as well as writing here's the difference when i'm writing for a book i have a deadline a contract and i may have even accepted money so i may (laughs) even have a washing machine or a dryer that i bought in other words it has to be purposeful it's very purposeful writing and yet at other times in my life i know full well some of the best writing is not purposeful writing it's writing that is free it's it's liberated it can go here it can go there it can think this it can think that it can compose this way, that way. And that's where, I should I say, real creativity, a whole different kind of creativity lies. So if there are writers listening, I hope that you also do writing that does not have a purpose except itself. It's the process itself that's the value and not the product. Okay, that's a good word. Mm-hmm. I need to hear that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We don't waste enough time as writers. Wasting time is like Sabbath. It's essential time. But there are too many of us trying to make a deadline, trying to to produce a product. And so, yeah, we'll both tuck that away. Okay. I'm going to hold on to that. That's my word for the day. Thank you. Thank you for that. Uh, okay. So, but you said you don't know if you have another book you don't know if you have another book that's waiting for you to be written to come out of you yet. No, because the book, my book ideas come largely from conversations. It comes from emails. It comes from newspaper articles. It comes from things that I just see coming up over and over again, but largely one-on-one-ish. You know, somebody I know, students, emails. Podcast. Yeah, asking. Favorite podcaster. Oh, yeah, I forgot favorite podcast. Yeah, I did. Mm -hmm. And that too. So that hasn't come up yet. And and it will, but it'll come up from a a community. It won't just be an idea I had off by myself. What if I just start sending you an idea for a book every morning? I'll just. (laughs) (laughs) Would I have to pay you? Uh, uh, you probably would have to pay someone to to, uh, to put in place a restraining order okay. that you would want. Um, but I don't think you'd have to actually give me any financial uh, in compensation for that. Right. Um, okay, so this book, mm-hmm. the one that we're talking about today, it comes out of your life as being like a teacher. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, the, the idea evolved from what you thought it was going to be um, as you're teaching a bunch of 19, 20, 21-year-old college students. Mm-hmm. And first of all, when you're writing with these college students in mind or, or describing their experiences, did you, f- here's the thing, I, you can't say this because you're a teacher. I can say this because mm-hmm. um, I don't have like any official responsibility to college students, but like they're all idiots. Like at, like your brain, your brain is not fully formed until 25. Like that's just science. And so they're dealing with like 80% complete brain. How? Do you, do you find yourself needing like to protect? Because me, I would hate for someone to write about anything I did when I was 20 years old. Oh, you've just told me so much about yourself as a college student, and I will very politely not bite on that. 
No, nothing. What did I tell you about myself? <laughs> that w- when you were a uh, college student, you were an idiot, but we're not going to go there. Okay? <laughs> so, so here is the truth. I loved my students. I, I loved college students. I got invitations to teach graduate students and I would decline. I just love that age group you talked about. And in some ways, I'd almost argue, good grief, their minds are exploding. They're, they're, many of them are away from home for the first time. They're just figuring out how to do their laundry, how to get fed, how many hours of sleep, how to handle all these classes they're taking. And, and they are transcending their former selves in an amazing way, exceeding their limits, banging into walls. And so there is idiocy in that, but there's also like, beginner's mind all over the place that they're tapping into genius they never knew they had because they're operating under their own fuel many of them for the first time ever so so i always found it an exciting time to for them to be out from under their parents roofs or their primary caregivers and they didn't want me to be a parent which was really different from my church experience where i i felt very much in a maternal sometimes at least speaking for the paternal but that felt much more parental to me than the classroom. So I found I found them great teachers on all sorts of levels and funny, funny, funny. Okay, uh, this is uh, another reason why people think you're a better person than me. Okay, <laughs> so that's nice of you to not call me an idiot. I guess the Enneagram says that uh, at 20 is your truest self. And so if you want to know where you're on the Enneagram, you have to ask, like, who, who are you when you're 20? And so maybe the Enneagram supports that. Huh? I, I, I'm... I, like I'm not going to drag you into the Enneagram conversation, but I, I guess other other wisdom traditions are valuing that age as well. Oh, and I could go earlier than that. I mean, I I do think it's not a mistake. A lot of religious traditions look at puberty. You know, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen. Christian churches have stretched confirmation to later teenage years, but there's a kind of spiritual puberty as well, a spiritual blossoming that mirrors what's happening in the body. So I think a lot of times we under underestimate what's going on in a in a teenager or a late adolescent's life because things are exploding all over okay speaking of book ideas there's your next title <laughs> spiritual puberty <laughs> oh god it's just got kind of a i don't know it, it's athlete's <laughs> foot or something medicine <laughs> yeah th- th- there it is there it is okay um all right, so we've been talking uh, about this, the, the podcast for the book, which is Holy Envy. And you asked, and you hadn't done this the other times you've been on, uh, for kind of like a, an outline of things that I want to talk about or questions that I was going to bring up. And I assume like you're best friends with Oprah. Like you've done plenty of these. You've been doing interviews for many years. Uh, you preached a few sermons. You've written a few books in your life. But yet you still feel that like that's something... Uh, there's something about this book that makes you desire that. What is it about this subject matter that makes you want that? Two answers. One is general, and that is I'm only a couple of weeks into traveling with this book. And when I find out what people want to talk about ahead of time, it tells me what my book is about in ways I, I didn't know. So I'm finding out what my book is really about by finding out what people are interested in talking about. So for instance, I printed up, you didn't guide me anywhere. You just told me what was interesting in the book. So that's interesting to me. That's the first answer. The second one is, I have a book about Christians engaging people of other faiths. And Christians are all over the board about whether that's all right or not. Mm -hmm. So it does help me to know something from my interviewer. And and I do know you well enough. I, I didn't 
you know, have to have that. But but I I talk to a wide variety of Christians, and for some, this needs a lot of apology around it. And for others, this is why what took you so long? You know, we're, we've been ahead of you forever on this. So it just helps to know, um, especially what podcast audience I'm talking to, because I want to yeah. know where people are starting. Yeah. Okay, so there is a, uh, a student that you describe in the book who uh, asks you, if, if you really are a Christian, then are you going to help us see what is wrong with these other religions? Mm-hmm. And so there is that sort of desire that I think many Christians have. When that student makes that statement to you, what's your initial response to that? I was a new teacher when that happened, and I was surprised by it because I was so eager to teach this class that I thought students would match me in my eagerness. But that was the late 1990s. And at that point, at the college where I taught, a lot of young people were coming into school homeschooled out of a um, um, a college that I'll leave unnamed in South Carolina. So they were coming in with um, a pretty funneled idea about religion. It a couple of years later, I would have recognized this young man as having come from an education where he was given a lot of Christian apologetics. He just, that was normal for him, that that whatever he received by way of education was going to be hedged about, you know, with Christian critique. So mm-hmm. now I would say he was asking a normal question for somebody who'd been, you know, high schooled the way he'd been high schooled. But at the time, it just struck me as so odd <laughs> that I, I, as a Christian, would be called upon to disvalue the other traditions I was teaching, because I'm Christian, which means I I live by this golden rule, you know, present other religions as you would have them present yours. And so it seemed to me only fair to do what I would have done to me, which was be fair. Yeah, that does seem kind of like what Jesus would say to do. A little bit. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess so. I'm I'm not an expert or anything, but it seems like it. But but sometimes the, the acceptance at the table of other religions seems to minimize my confidence that I'm at the right seat at the table. See, and that's so, the truth. What you just said is the truth. This is going to put my test to the faith, and am I up to it? And is my faith up to it? I think you just put your finger on the reluctance. It's not, I'm going to go to hell if I sit down at this table. It is, I might be about to ask questions I don't want to ask. Hmm. How, how do you think people display that? Because I... I don't want to be proven that I've spent the last you know, 15 years of my life in a church that might not be the right one. Do you think it's, why do you think it's that, not the hell thing? Well, so you, you just used the right word, right? That how, if this isn't the right one and where a number of Christians could leave me is that I've come to conceive of the divine as a diamond with hundreds of facets, and the diamond's right, but none of the facets can claim that. None of the facets, you know, are the diamond. So, God's the diamond, you know, the sacred is the diamond. So, there's not a right facet on there and a wrong one sitting right next to it. Our job's to reflect the light in that beautiful rock. So, so, um, so you need to reframe, say that question again. I completely got taken away by my diamond. No, I, I I feel like a diamond's supposed to do that. It's supposed to distract you. That just seems right. Um, uh, l- let me take this a different direction. Y- you tell a story about going to, uh, I believe it's a Hindu temple, and beginning of, I don't know the right word, uh, ritual, worship service? Yeah, um, puja. 
What say that word again? A puja. Yeah, just what you said. An, an offering puja. of an offering of flowers or foods or drinks to the divine, so the divine can bless them and give them back. Yeah. Honestly, puja sounds cooler than it's our church service. Like I, I'm just saying, like, <laughs> linguistically, it's got more going for it. Just uh, anyway, that's just free. That's free. Okay, so when that happens, you said that it was like this colossal pileup in uh, in your mental highway, and you have these verses that jump out to you. You know, Exodus 20, the first of the Ten Commandments, have no other gods before me. Uh, you know, First Corinthians 18, idol worship, Paul's teaching. Uh, it seems like that would probably be the experience of not just many of your students, but, but many people who've been a part of the Christian tradition for a long time of, this isn't a, a diamond with different like sparkles that people are seeing or facets of it, but this is, this is a different jewel that people are looking at, right? Could be. Everybody's free to, yeah, come up with their own metaphors. The experience you're talking about, and I hope that your listeners will read you know, the longer version, but the very first field trip I ever dreamed up for college students was to go to the Hindu temple south of Atlanta, which was old, venerable place or old-ish and had been there a long time. But I, I had not fully considered, again, how it would strike students from backgrounds other than mine, nor had I really thought about what it was like not just to go with a bunch of friends or people, you know, who who wanted to go visiting, but to go as their teacher, you know, as teacher to students to the Hindu temple. So once we were involved in this puja, which was arranged by a Hindu colleague who went with me, she was a professor of um, math at Piedmont, and she went because she wanted to visit the temple. And unbeknownst to me, she had asked a priest to do a puja for us, to ask blessings on our studies, on our our travel back home, on our families. It was an enormously kind thing she did. She just didn't check with me first. So mm-hmm. before I knew it, we were in this alcove in front of a very large statue of Vishnu um, with a priest performing this ceremony on our behalf because m- my fellow professor requested it. The helpful thing was to feel this riot go on inside of me that came from way below my conscious level, as you said, of you shall have no other gods before me. And then if you eat food that has been offered to an idol, what shall those who know less than you think da, 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 from Paul's letters? So it was a really amazing experience of how much was deep in me that hadn't even made it up to my brains yet. My brains, you know, went on this trip completely ready to learn what I learned. Um, so it did help me understand students who might be having the same experience. And we didn't go back there again. We found a little Vedanta Center in Atlanta where we met in more of a living room situation with nothing scary anywhere. And that turned out to be a much better way for students to learn because their defenses could go down, down, down. But, yeah. you know, to get back to your question about this is a whole different diamond, um, every, that, that is incumbent on every single person listening to us to decide how they will think of people of other faiths. Um, I do encourage them to think of people of other faiths because a faith isn't a thing. A faith is like a diagram of the cha-cha on the wall. And until two people do the cha-cha, it's not anything. You can't reify a faith. You know, the Nicene Creed is not my faith. It's people responding to that, deciding how they'll live out of that and other things. But um, every person has to decide where he or she is on this and how he or she will go forward and what his or her teachings teach her about being with people of other faiths. And it's amazing how much of that is subconscious, I think, not examined. 
What, and by that, you mean it, it just gets ingrained in us somehow and we don't even know it's there? Oh, we just have a huge yikes response. A lot of us have a yikes response and, and we haven't even thought about what it is. You know, I wrote another book called Learning to Walk in the Dark and I hadn't thought of it till this minute, but people have a yikes response to darkness, to the word dark, to the evocation of darkness, and they haven't examined what that's about. Where'd they get, where'd they get the yikes from? What's the yikes about? So I think there's a different yikes that comes up in a lot of Christians. And when I started examining where it had come from, wow, was I surprised. Yeah. So in, in your last book, you, you talk about that uh, if you're afraid of the dark, one of the things that you can do is you can go spelunking in West Virginia. <laughs> and so that's how you can get rid of the yikes response to uh, darkness. That's a callback to your last book. Uh, this one, you, your suggestion that you just made of like, don't think of the religion, but think of a person. Mm-hmm. I think that makes it. Go visit. Go to somebody else's house. Don't invite them to yours. You know, go visit somebody. Find out a friendly masjid or temple or gurdwara near you and see if you can go and take a friend along with you and go check it out. Go see for yourself. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Check out your stereotypes. Check out your your imagination of that other group and um, and hope it goes well. Yeah, it, that seems to be the terrible thing to do. So you reference this guy who at uh, one point was at Yale, uh, Christer Stendahl. Am yeah. I saying that right? Yeah. Well, he used to be the dean at Harvard, so he was. Um, oh. he, yeah, he was part of the competition. <laughs> oh, because you're a Yale person and he's at Harvard. That's yeah. right. Yeah. So that's nice. That's very charitable for you to reference him. I mean, that's probably hurt you a little bit inside, didn't it? Oh, he. If you'd met him. How could it? He's like a skinny Santa Claus. He's just a wonderful person. Hmm. Uh, But yeah, he he was dean there, and then he um, left that job, and he was elected the bishop of Stockholm, Sweden. So we would say Lutheran, but in Sweden, you don't have to say Lutheran. He was just the bishop of the Church of Sweden. And when the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints decided to build a temple in Stockholm in 1985, he was called to the microphone, I think, to ease tension. And if anyone thought he was going to defend the traditional religion of Sweden, he disappointed them because instead he gave three rules for religious understanding. You know them, right? Yeah, yeah, I've, I've got them memorized yeah. or written, written down in front of me. Okay, I'll read them. When trying, to, yeah. when trying to understand other religion, you should ask the adherents of that religion, not its enemies. Mm-hmm. That's a good one. Second, com- compare. don't compare your best to their worst. Mm-hmm. And three... Leave room for, bum, 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 book title, Holy Envy. Isn't that great? What a great phrase, Holy Envy. And I think he invented it because, you know, I Googled it to pieces to see about using it for a title. Um, And it it shows up very seldom in print, but it's an idea that's gotten a lot of mileage since then as people try to put those two words together. Yeah. Uh, The difference of getting adherence of that religion and... Mm. not listening to, you know, what someone, you're reading some blog about what's wrong with that religion. Mm. I think that makes a vast difference. That's the thing about like going to meet an actual person, someone who's behind this flesh and blood and not comparing the worst things about them to the, I I think that's just, you, you set the table completely different with what you're describing than what many of us have done with other religions. Oh yeah, it's true. And I, I made in class an assignment to, you know, one option for a short paper was to go talk to somebody of another tradition, but I offered three questions because I didn't want the kind of knee-jerk kinds of questions, which were just things like, do you believe in heaven and hell, and why don't you believe in Jesus, and, you know, how do you see God? So the questions were things like, what do you love about being what you are? 
um, what is your favorite story from your tradition? And the third question was, what do you think most people get wrong about your tradition? And after that, they were free to ask anything they wanted. But, you know, to to talk to an adherent and ask them about the best in their traditions instead of trying to kind of suss out the differences right away. Yeah. It it seems that a lot of us are doing the, I want to learn about you so that I can use that to develop my argument so that I can tell you why I'm right. And I'm going to just, I'm I'm researching to get points so that I can use against you. Mm -hmm. And I I think this is actually a a Gandhi thing that you referenced in the book, but Gandhi had met someone who's uh, from the Jewish uh, tradition. And Gandhi says, oh, it's good that you can learn more about, you know, my religion so that we, so that you can go back and be the best uh, Jewish person you can be. I love that, that you just confl- you just put the Dalai Lama and Gandhi together, and they are so happy you did that. Did but I so, get him wrong? Yeah. No, Dalai Lama? It's, no, it's the Dalai Lama who, who said exactly that to a friend of Ibu Patel's. Um, yeah, that's what I meant. Yeah, that's... I was, <laughs> no, but I, I love it that they're, they're in the same file in your mind. It's so great. Put me in there too, please. And there are a lot of people who belong in that file. But yeah, that was the Dalai Lama who, who met a Jew who so admired Buddhism. And what the Dalai Lama said is Judaism and Buddhism are a lot alike. You should learn more about both and become a better Jew. I so envy that. What a wonderful thing to say to somebody. I want you to be a better what you are. You know, how wonderful of you to to see the similarities between us. But who knows how many people went to the Dalai Lama to say, I want to convert. And he said, no, why don't you go home and become a better what you already are? Yeah, I've got a friend of mine named Josh Graves, who is one of your doctoral students, I think, at Emory. And he's been um, doing a lot of work in Nashville with uh, interfaith relationships between uh, the Islam community and Christianity. And that's one of the things he probably ripped this off from you from one of your classes, that a class he took from you. But his language is always, I want to help you be the best Muslim you can be, and mm-hmm. and I, I want so that I can be the best Christian I can be. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I feel like we just have a different interaction when when we allow ourselves to be neighbors, mm-hmm. and it's and it's not trying to be confrontational, but one of the things about Christianity is that it is an evangelistic religion. Mm-hmm. And so how do, how do we come, like, how, how do we make sense of, of that facet of the Christian tradition? Islam and Buddhism are evangelistic traditions. So mm-hmm. isn't it interesting the different ways in which these three very evangelistic traditions do that? That's one point of interest is to find out more about how they do it. Um, and then I, I, when I looked at my own yikes response, it was so interesting to me to notice how most of the Christian teachings that had been emphasized for me emphasized the rightness of my choice and the rightness of my religious identity and the rightness of my spiritual exemplar, Jesus. And yet when I went back to look, I found many, many parts of scripture that had never been emphasized to me because they privileged the stranger and the outsider and the one who comes from beyond the boundaries. I began to see Jesus as one who often approached people from beyond the boundaries, not to drag them over the line into his territory, but to send them home well and and saying things to them like, your faith has made you well, go your way. You know, he didn't say, follow me. 
um, hmm. to more than 11 people by my count. <laughs> no, wait, to 14 people, 12, 12 disciples and um, one guy who had a whole lot of money and decided not to come because he didn't want to part with it all. And, that. and one guy Jesus invited to follow who said he had to go buy, bury his father first. But if you get down to a real count, um, Jesus sent people away. Um, more often than he asked people to follow. Half the time he turned around to people following him and said, Are, have you thought about this? Have you thought about what this is going to cost you? Are you sure you want to do this? So I was never taught to think that way. No, no, I wasn't either. And when uh, it was either Gandhi, the Dalai Lama, or BBT who said <laughs> the evangelism of the rose. Yeah, that's Gandhi. Are we, are we sure that's not Dalai Lama or you? Well, sure. No, I'm not. No, we could get sued for this. That was Gandhi. <laughs> okay. All right. Good. Good. But it, it, it spread its its fragrance and allows people to respond as they will. And there's something about like let's just display the beauty of what Christianity is. And if you want to be a part of this, we would love to have you. Mm-hmm. But I think it creates a, a more civil and loving environment where it's not confrontational. It's not confrontational, and furthermore. Let's get harsh here for a minute. Gandhi was just undone by how much Christian evangelism was a carrot on a stick. And the carrot was medicine and money and uh, infrastructure support and a lot of things that didn't have anything to do with the gospel. But he really wanted those things separated. He said, <laughs> you know, if, if you wish to spread your religion, the way you can do that is embody it. You know, so that people walk up to you and say, what is it about you that makes you so shiny or that makes you so loving or that makes you so kind? Um, and that changes the, the, the bargain really fast. I can't tell you how many youth groups, you know, pull into places with the best phones, best shoes, best tents, best coolers, best vehicles a lot of those places have ever seen. Um, so you wonder sometimes if they're preaching the gospel or they're preaching prosperity when they arrive in those places. It's a... Ouch. Ouch. That one's pretty convicting. Yeah. Uh, I also realize that I'm not a nice enough person if I'm going to have to evangelize that way. Like, I would rather just tell you, like, I'll, I'll give you a track. <laughs> I can do that. But I'm, I'm not a nice enough person that, like, where I'm going to do that. So I'll reassess that. Isn't that oh. tough, though? I think that's the position of a lot of older Christians, speaking from, from my crowd, is if we're looking at shrinking numbers, we're so busy blaming the culture, blaming young people, blaming social media. And, you know, it might be time to turn up a mirror and say, we haven't been living very compelling lives, have we? Wow. That's another one. Okay. Send the emails to bbt at yahoo.com if you're offended by that one, uh, older people, because I did not say that for the record. Um <laughs> Okay, speaking of hostility, uh, you, 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 oh, wait, you, wait, wait, okay, go ahead. <laughs> I'm just saying, I want everyone to know that I did not say all the old people at my church are to blame oh, if people are not coming to a certain service yeah, or not. No, um, no, 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 no. That's Luke Barbara. did not say that. That was Barbara. Yeah, that was her. Dr. Dr. Taylor. Okay, well, one of the things that you, you notice is that our climate is more hostile and there's more fear now. And one of the, the stories you tell that I found to be surprising is that after 9-11, on that Friday, you had a trip scheduled uh, to, I believe, a mosque in the area, and you still went. I, and then you make the observation, if that would have happened now, mm-hmm. if there had been that sort of terrorist attack, there's no way that 
you're doing that. What do you think has changed in the um, however many years it's been, uh, you know, 15 decade and a half since that happened that has up the intensity and up the hostility? Oh, I'll just grab the usual handles that everybody does. But, you know, our, first of all, that was the beginning, 9-11 was, of 17 years of war in Muslim-dominant countries around the world. So that I looked out at a classroom of students, many of whom had lived their whole lives with the U.S. being at war overtly or covertly in Muslim countries. Mm -hmm. And with all the media surrounding that, um, with Hollywood movies that loved Arab terrorists, you know, who made a ton of money off of uh, brown Arabic-speaking villains. Um, So saturation far beyond um, the actual numbers, you know, of people whose who's lives were being threatened or ended. Um, but it, it was a big wake-up call to, for me to realize that in 2001, no one argued with me going to a, a masjid that week. And frankly, I was no more in danger now than I think I am now, except in my fear-fueled imagination. I, I never want to minimize any act of terror that takes the lives or limbs or sanity of people. And yet I am aware more people die in traffic accidents every year in Georgia than have been harmed in terrorist attacks on this soil. You know, it's, 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 our, our, our fear is overblown. Our, our imaginations have been taken away from us or we've surrendered our imaginations so that when we look at people, we see things that are not there, which makes me want to just tag two things. I want to tag human psychology and fear of the stranger, xenophobia, which has been around as long as forever. And, mm-hmm. you know, you can test babies and children, their reactions to photos of people who look like them and who don't look like them. So we've got that built in. And then let's yep. tag politics. You know, let's also tag that everything we've been talking about, tribalism, opposition, fear of sitting down with the other, what will it mean about us if we sit at table with those other people right now? That's as much about our politics as it is about our religion. So I found over and over again, this book ended up being not so much about, well, it is about religious difference, but it's about human difference and our and our fear of the other. And uh, yeah. our, our ways of drawing our groups tightly for reasons that go way below our avowed reasons for drawing the circles tightly. Yeah. And it seems like the only thing that can dispel the fear of the other is friendship with the other. And when, once you know a person, it, it changes the narrative. Because like you mentioned, the statistics are uh, substantially uh, opposite to kind of the the sense or the fear that exists. The numbers just don't add up. It's like, it's like shark attacks. The, mm-hmm. There are more people that die from dogs mm-hmm. every year than they die from sharks. Mm-hmm. But because of Mr. Peter Benchley and his shark novel mm-hmm. uh, that became the movie, Jaws, mm-hmm. people have a different attitude. And that's terrible for animals. It's, it's astronomically worse with people. And, yeah, and, and so I, I think uh, an opportunity like what you're doing with your class and getting chances to meet and to get to know, uh, even if it's just a surface interaction with people who are different, it, it changes things. And it also changes the level of arrogance someone has about who they are. And 
one of the things that I, I love about the metaphor that you they use in the book is there's a difference between a wave and the ocean. Mm-hmm. And it, it's easy for us to think that the... Did I get that right? Wave in the ocean, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. that, that's you. That's not like the Dalai Lama or... Yeah, that's sort of a parallel to the diamond idea. There's an ocean and there mm-hmm. are waves. And, you know, a wave belongs to the ocean. But we'll come back to that. You keep going. No, I just... I, like, I, I feel like I'm attributing good phrases to the wrong people. And, you know, maybe Jesus said that. I didn't know. I, maybe I haven't <laughs> read the Gospels well enough. Who knows? But, uh, but there is a, a, a level of humility that you don't have it all figured out, which... Do you, do you think you have to have that sort of humility to enter into these discourses and this sort of interaction with others? Okay, I'll, I'll rival you because it was either Augustine or Aquinas or Kierkegaard who said, <laughs> if you think you understand, it's not God. So it seems to me like the least I can do is own that if I understand, it's not God. And that gives me a kind of theological humility that makes new levels of relationship possible. But to go back to Stendhal's rule number two, here's here's one thing for any of your listeners to remember, is should you decide to visit the neighbors or to get to know other people, please allow them to have bad days. Allow them to be cranky and off subject and maybe sounding a little bit apocalyptic about something because... Yeah, because we do it. Everybody does it. And yet I often find when people are first making new friends, they expect a perfect exemplar of the religion on the other side. And that's not going to happen. Um, you know, or if it happens, you might be looking at a cardboard character instead of a real <laughs> being. But, you know, we, we sort of compare our average to their average. or We compare, you know, we compare the ways in which we're flawed to the ways in which they're flawed. But, but again, at the beginning of the journey, I find everybody wanting perfect Buddhists, perfect Muslims, perfect Sikhs. They want perfect everybody's. But yep. are they perfect? Nuh-uh. No, no. Uh, well, as a Texan, I'm contractually obligated to quote a Texan. But uh, former President Bush was speaking at the funeral for the police officers uh, who were killed in, uh, in Dallas a couple of years ago. And he says the line that we compare our best intentions with others' worst of actions. Yeah. And it's just like, that's not a charitable, charitable thing to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've got this line in the book that uh, goes like this. It's such a short distance between believing you possess an error-free message from God and believing that you are an error-free message, messenger of God. Mm. Why is why is that su- such a short distance? Why is that such a short distance? I think because I have had so many encounters with people wanting to talk to me about a text I can't argue with and it turns out they don't want me to argue with them either. Um, so it just seems like the characteristic goes from one to the other in a lightning flash moment. It's like that old bumper sticker. What did it say? You know, I love to be around people who are seeking God, but not people who think they've found God. Something like that. That's too long for a bumper sticker, so it must have been shorter. A, but it could have been a truck in Texas. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it, it's uh, just remarkable to me the way I feel bludgeoned uh, after the good news has been <laughs> offered me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's probably not a good sign if you feel like you've been bludgeoned. I, I, I love the thing you said about the, uh, one of the quotes you have about the Bible. Not that I hate the other ones, but this is the one I particularly love so much that I'm going to read it to you right now. I, I love reading quotes to people who wrote them because it's just like, one, do you remember that you wrote this? Or two, it's like, I, I know I wrote it, so why do you keep saying it? Anyway, I'm going to do that right now. <laughs> uh, 
uh, in regard to the Bible, uh, passages that make me, there are passages that make me want to take a pair of scissors to them mm-hmm. and others that I have copied in calligraphy for framing. Mm-hmm. But that seems to be the point. The Bible is bigger than I am. It does not care what I like and do not like. It precedes me by millennia and will likely still be around when my civilization returns to the dust. Mm-hmm. It, it seems like, like everyone's had that experience where there are things that you're like, this is me. I'm going to get a tattoo to my arm. I'm going to put it on my wall. Mm-hmm. And there's other parts like, I don't want anything to do with this. Mm-hmm. But, but I love the, 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 the posture it creates of knowing your finitude mm-hmm. and the fact that it is bigger than you. Mm-hmm. I hope so. I still remember being at a clergy conference and the assignment was to get in small groups and talk about a person who had most embodied Jesus for you. And in my group was a woman priest, and she sat, sat, sat. She was last, and somebody finally got to her, and she said, I've been trying to think who told me the truth so clearly that I wanted to kill him for it. Oh. (laughs) Yeah, that's sort of what I did. I had a little mind-blown experience at that point. Um, But... It is amazing. We don't tattoo anything like that on our arms, right? We don't, we don't, (laughs) uh, we, we tattoo, you know, our, our curated, our curated phrases. We all curate our Bibles. Um, Peter Enns, whom you probably have had on your show, E-N-N-S, we had a great conversation on his podcast about the ways we curate our Bibles. Just hold one up if you happen to be talking to somebody and you're a Bible user and you can tell which pages have fingerprints on them, which ones are dark and which ones just don't have much on them, like numbers or chronicles mm-hmm. or, you know, name, name your least read book. But, but we all pick and choose. So why not on that? Yeah. Well, speaking of our friends, Pete literally just texted me when the podcast started because it's opening day in uh, baseball. And uh, <laughs> I mean, just for the record that you've talked to both of us, I mean, he, he's a like he's he's a scholar and all that, but he's not as fun to talk to as me, right? Like you don't just, oh. like I know that you think you don't have to say it. You don't have to say it, but I I know it. Peter, if you ever hear this, you can hear that he's setting me up. So I love you both equally. That's not true. That is not true at all. Okay, uh, you say this is the beauty of engaging with other religions is that you know yourself so you can know others, and then you make the other idea. This is the the whole envy stuff that. I mean, that's the entirety of the book. So I guess the, the entire thing would be the whole Andy stuff, categorically speaking. But here's a line. Let attraction to other teachings transform my love for my own. Mm-hmm. If someone's going, but wait a minute. I, I see things about other religions that I like. It, it's nice, but it makes me feel uncomfortable about my own. Mm-hmm. How, can, how can they make that journey to letting the attraction to other teachings transform the love for their own tradition? There's no guarantee, and I, I want to be clear for anybody who's listening that this is not a book that aims to convince. It's it's not a book that has a destination marked out for where people ought to end up, you know, where, where I'm trying to lead them. Um, I, I intentionally chose to, to write it as a classroom memoir about encountering the great religions of the world for the first time, which is what many college students were doing so that the students themselves could be avatars for readers who said, oh, I would have asked that, or wow, I wish I could have gone there. But there's not a place you're supposed to end up. I mean, if anything, it's about engaging anyone who's different from you um, with more curiosity than than fear, more hospitality than disrespect, and, and seeing what that does to tenderize a heart instead of putting barbed wire around 
a heart. And again, we've all got it in us, but if if that's not at the heart of Jesus' teachings, I don't know what is. I mean, you, you talk about knowing yourself better to know others or knowing others better to know yourself. That sounds a little like a great commandment <laughs> that, that there's... Those are all wrapped up together into some kind of divine unity that we keep trying to split apart, God and self and neighbor. Um, they're all rolled together in that great one. So, so there's, a, there's enough to keep me busy the rest of my life. That's good. That's good. Okay. Well, this has been great. Now we have to go two more hours at least. I'm not done. You're done. We can keep going? Okay. I can keep talking. Okay. <laughs> Do you have questions for me? I feel like I've asked you all the questions. I mean, if you have questions for me, Feel free. I mean, if you want me to answer something for you, I can do that. Oh, I do want to say this, though, is is you have a wonderful sense of humor, and, and you've drawn mine out. And I just want to point out how helpful that is when any of us is talking about hard things. Not the kind of humor that dismisses or demeans, and not the kind of humor that tries to pretend like it's not a difficult conversation. But there's something about being able to laugh you know, especially at myself and with somebody else that makes hard things so much easier to talk about. So thank you for being that kind of person. Well, since we're best friends, this is just what we do for each other. You know, I'm here for you. Yeah. Uh, always, if you need to laugh. What so, would Jesus do? Laugh. The Bible never said so, but I bet he did. I think he would. I think he would laugh a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I, here's what I like about your book. I, I appreciate, okay, I've, I've done this before in the podcast, previous episodes where I try to like give you a softball question to get you to kind of like, I don't know, like I'm not saying take down another side, but to really like go at, at someone else. And that's just, you never really do that. You seem like you're always taking this sort of like, I'm not telling everyone exactly what they need to think. I'm, I'm going to make room for other people. This isn't the only one way to do it. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I feel like if, if we all got that, it would make our interactions with others a whole lot different. It'd be, it'd be better. I, yeah, but you know what? If you want to get on the bestseller list, you better have seven things <laughs> that everybody ought to do. <laughs> you, no, that's not, you've literally been on the bestseller list, though. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but not for long, Luke. Let's just point that oh, out. Not oh, come on. It's a whole lot longer than any of my books have been on the bestseller list. Oh. So um, I think last time, one of the times we talked, you were just on the cover of Time Magazine. It was announced that day. So uh, I appreciate your humility and all that. Um, that's a very nice gesture. That's okay. Let me tell you something. I just got done with a meeting where our church is hosting uh, your people, the Episcopalian. You're, are, are you still like my people? Oh yeah, I'm a priest in good standing in the Episcopal You're good. Church. Nobody believes it, but I am. Okay. Well, here's the thing. Our church is having like there is the new bishop and like one of the bishops in the area is like the service is happening at our Church of Christ building, and so we've got. Uh, the is it called the presiding bishop curry yes, yes. Is that, am i saying that right presiding That's right. bishop presiding bishop mm-hmm. so he's coming for and all here's the thing if you want what i could do is i could lock the the nice priest who who's like who won the is it won the award i feel like that's the wrong language who's been nominated what am i supposed to say <laughs> anyway the person who's going to win win the oscar and become the new bishop i could lock her in a room if you're here we could just have you sneak out and you could get become the new bishop of this part of Texas. Are you I interested? Look, uh, I look so bad in hats. I'm going to let the bishops who wear the hats just take okay. it away. All right, fine. Don't, don't say it in offer. Don't I say it in offer. Thank you. Okay. All right, uh, the book is Holy Envy, and I think you did, you did good. Well done. Another good book. Thank you so much for letting me talk about it with your crowd. I really appreciate it. Uh, well, they're going to love the book, so they're going to all go buy it. And... Yep, that's it. Thank you.
All right. Thank you, Luke. Bye. Super. Thanks for checking out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned. <laughs>